Well, we are continuing our study through the book of 2 Timothy, and we are up to the end of chapter 2. So if you have a Bible there with you, if you don't, there are some on the back table there. You can uh, feel free to use one of those. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take one of those home. Uh, But we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 to 26. And so if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. I'll start at verse 22 to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will the sense of reading of god's word you may be seated well as i mentioned we're we're getting back into our study of second timothy we've been going through that book as is our, our custom verse by verse uh, bit by bit as we go through it And here we see uh, kind of the continuation of Paul's instructions to Timothy about how to deal with false teaching and error. And that is something that the church will always be faced with. The best of churches in this life will have to deal with these things in one way or another. You know, it seems, I don't know if it seems like this to you, but it does to me. There always seems to be some new controversy, some new false teaching Uh, around the bend whenever you seem to get uh, done with one there seems to be another one right around the corner uh, trying to worm its way into God's church Um, there's always some new thing that believers are arguing or debating over sometimes for good sometimes for not so good Uh, there's always the ever-present danger of false teaching not just controversy for its own sake but sometimes false teaching threatens the purity and peace of God's church You might remember, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, a very familiar chapter to many of us there, Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders on his way to Jerusalem. It's the last time he expects to see them in this life. And so he gives them, you know, kind of his last instructions, so to speak, the things he thinks are the most important things for them to be reminded of. And if you remember, what does he warn them about there in that last visit with them? He warns them of, of savage wolves that are going to creep in among the flock after he leaves. You know, it's a, the old saying, that when the cat is away, the mice will play. Well, Paul is the cat in that particular situation, and he knows when he leaves, they're going to see it as an opening. And he says that, that savage wolves, he tells them, are going to creep in among the flock, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. He knows it's going to happen, and so he warns them. And notice in that In that chapter, Paul reminds them, he says, that for three years, I believe that's the whole time he was there in Ephesus, for three years, he did not cease night or day to admonish everyone there with tears about that very thing. Uh, Think about that. For three years, Paul taught the whole counsel of God, but one of the things that he harped on, so to speak, over and over again, night and day, even with tears, was that false teachers were going to come, and they had to be ready, the elders there had to be ready for it. How seriously did the Apostle Paul take the threat of false teaching in the church, 
and heresy in the church to spend that much time and that much emotional energy warning and admonishing the church about those things and imploring them to guard the flock that Christ had purchased with his own blood and to teach the whole counsel of God in their ministry to God's people. Paul tells us here in our text that the pastor or the elder, one of the things we have to be mindful of is that he is, verse 24, what? The Lord's servant. You know, it's, it's very easy sometimes in, in many ways, I think, as a pastor or an elder, you know, it doesn't matter the size of the church. I think maybe with a larger church, it's a little more of a temptation. Uh, but whatever the case, when you have the office, there's a dignity of office, or there should be, with, a, with to be an elder or a pastor. Uh, you have people listening to you on a regular basis. There is a temptation possibly to pride or to thinking a little higher of yourself than you might uh, have warrant to do. And what does Paul say? Paul says, the Lord's what? Servant. The word, it's the same word as slave in the New Testament. It is, there's dignity of the office on the one hand, but on the other hand, uh, we're just God's servants, and that's how we should think of ourselves. And, and the fact that we are God's servants as elders in the church should influence and inform our approach and conduct in ministry, and that extends even to our dealings with controversy and false teaching. It has to influence even the way we go about dealing with those things. Controversy, Paul tells us in our text, controversy for its own sake is to be avoided. That may sound like uh, like a no-brainer to most of us in this room, but but in practice, it's a lot harder to, to do that than it may than it may sound. And controversy is to be avoided because it tends toward quarrels rather than edification. Now, at the same time, false teaching, as Paul says throughout this letter, false teaching does have to be dealt with. It's kind of a Rob mentioned sort of a tightrope walk. Uh, there's a tightrope walk there, too. You have to deal with false teaching and error, but at the same time not get caught up and bogged down in unnecessary controversies. But false teaching harms the purity and peace of the church, and so uh, God's, God's shepherds, his under-shepherds, need to deal with those things as they come. But, you know, there's an old saying, uh, there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. Well, that's true when it comes to these things as well. There is a right way and a wrong way to deal with controversy and false teaching in the church. And here Paul tells us in our text, I think the right way to deal with these things, there's a right way to teach and correct one's opponents. And that right way, as Paul tells us in our passage here, involves patience, gentleness, or kindness. And this is because the goal, the goal in correcting our opponents, and we do have opponents in, in, in the church at times, the goal is not so much to be proven right or even to win the argument, but Lord willing, the goal is to win back the person, to win back the person who has been caught in untruth back to the truth of God in repentance, which only God can grant to a person. We can't gin up repentance in someone else. We can't, by the power of our you know, argumentation and things, we can't make someone turn back to the truth, you know, the old saying, you can lead a horse to water. Well, that goes even more so when it comes to the truth of God, when someone has been brought into a state of being deceived or be even being a deceiver. So a few things we're going to look at in our text. And the very first one of those is that we are to avoid controversies. That is the first thing that Paul draws our attention to in our text in verses 23 and 24. What does Paul say there? He says, 
have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Why? For you know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, or just simply must not quarrel, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. So back in, in the previous verse, verse 22, Paul told us to flee one thing and to pursue something else, to, to run from something and run to something else. We are to flee youthful lusts. We are to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and even peace with others who call on the Lord from a sincere heart. But now in verse 23, he says, we are to, really the word is just avoid. We are to avoid foolish controversies or disputes. Now, to be sure, it takes discernment and a biblically renewed mind to discern when and where and what those things are. We have to discern what is a foolish controversy from what is false teaching being taught that needs to be rebuked and corrected. You have to, it takes work sometimes to know the difference between those two things. Now, Paul, in our text, Paul is not ruling out doctrinal debate. He is not ruling out the need or forbidding the need for precision in doctrine in the church. He's certainly not forbidding Timothy and pastors today uh, from, from contending for the faith, as Jude verse 3 tells us to do, commands us to do. We are to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But contending for the faith isn't the same thing as contending for our own views and our own being right and whatnot. He forbids Timothy and godly pastors and elders in every age really from the temptation to display. The temptation to display and to treat doctrinal issues as a kind of a sport, as a kind of a contest, so to speak. It's much of the same thing that he said back in verse 14 earlier in the chapter. We looked at that probably a number of months ago when it says, Remind them, remember this, these men that Paul, that Paul tells Timothy to, 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 to entrust, rather, uh, the, the doctrines to faithful men who can teach others also. Now he says, remind them of these things and what? Charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. They're not to get engaged in word battles, in, in kind of word arguments for their own sake. Why? Because it doesn't do any good and it actually brings harm, spiritual harm upon the hearers, those who listen. So Paul's still dealing with that same line of thought here in our text later in chapter 2. Now, one of these things, as I was reading this and preparing for, for preaching this Sunday, I couldn't help but think about social media. Some of, some of you, like me, are very active on social media. And, you know, if you're on, for example, Twitter, uh, there is a limit to how many characters you can type. It's not really meant or designed for extended discourse and discussion. You can only write a very short paragraph at a time. And so some people will try to make a long thread and have, you know, one of 15. And you have to kind of work, you know, kind of reverse engineer and go back through and read it. It's just not designed for that kind of discussion and discourse. But, you know, one of the things that you will find in abundance on sites such as that is word battles, is people stirring up controversy for its own sake, arguing over, am I allowed to say the word stupid? We don't say that at home, but arguing over stupid things, things that don't really matter or arguing. You can argue a, a, a right thing, but in such a way that's just not godly. It's just not edifying or helpful. We should be careful that we aren't doing those kinds of things 
Uh, you know, very often we act on social media, and I think I'm guilty as anybody is this, on, on, on such a thing as this. We act on social media in such a way we would never do in person. We say things to people that we have, you know, we have keyboard muscles. We say things to people online that we'd never dare say to their face, especially us guys. Why? Because you might get punched in the nose. But when there's a screen guarding you, we think, we think we're bigger than we really should be. But as far as the church goes, theology, doctrine, and scripture is not a game. The pulpit is not a place for showing off or seeking to impress. Controversy is not a ministry platform. In some ways, we in the church have begun, I think, in a bad way to mimic some of the worst parts of the entertainment industry. We, we want to get views, want to get people in the seats, want to get clicks on our websites, and so we act like those who do those things. You know, many churches in our day have adopted something like an entertainment model for public worship. I've mentioned this probably too many times, but, but public worship on the Lord's Day very often sometimes resembles entertainment. Services in these kind of, of, of places can sometimes seem more like a pop concert with a motivational speech at the end. You know, we often, it's been said, we often talk about the bulletin that you're handed as you walk in. We sometimes call it a program because we, where our mindset has been changed to be an entertainment kind of, of model. Now, why do we do that? Why do we turn God's worship into something bordering on, on entertainment? We do this in order to attract an audience, don't we? Now, if you read some of the church growth material that's still out there today, that's kind of the, the mindset that's presented in those things, in those books. And, but are, are we doing those people any good when we do this? There's a fine line between worship and entertainment in some places. And if you get them in the door that way, are you really doing them any, any real lasting good? Or are we implicitly, even if not intentionally, training them to think of the things of God in a trivial manner. Because that's what entertainment is. It's trivia. And so the more, you, you, the more we make our worship seem like entertainment and appealing to the flesh, the more trivial, even if unintentionally, we make it out to be. Others have built online ministry platforms, so-called, including videos and podcasts where Christian truth or even current events are dealt with from a biblical perspective. Now, in many cases, these things are done in a very polished and, I would have to say, entertaining way. Some of them kind of mimic the talk shows you see on TV or you listen to on the radio. I wonder if this is wise that we do things like this. Some Christian websites and online ministry websites seem to be more concerned at times with clicks, site visits, and advertising revenue than with edification. At times, it seems like the easiest way to get clicks is the constant stirring up of controversy of some kind, seemingly for its own sake at times. I'm not going to name some of these sites. I don't want you to go to them out of curiosity, but there are many that that's all they seem to do is kick the hornet's nest. To say things that, that seem bold to get attention, that's really all they seem to be doing. Brothers and sisters, if you find yourself in our day visiting Christian websites, so-called, such as this, where edification doesn't really seem to be the goal, I would, I would suggest that you stop frequenting them. If they are not edifying you in the faith, maybe we should not be spending time on them. Avoid such things. What does Paul say? I think Paul would say that kind of stuff just ruins the hearers or the clickers or the watchers, so to speak. 
It's not edifying. These things, Paul says in verse 23, breed quarrels. The only thing they produce is quarrels. The only thing they give birth to is fights and quarrels. And what does Paul say in verse 24? The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Or really what he says is, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. He's not to be known as a verbal brawler. That's not what we are supposed to be about. Even the word order in the Greek here is significant. Sometimes, you know, we, in English, in our, in our modern day with typing and things, uh, you can italicize a word or make it bold or underline. Sometimes you get emails from people, the whole thing's in, you know, capital letters like they're yelling at you and like, why are you angry? You know, um, well, in, in Greek, in New Testament Greek, uh, what, the way that they emphasize things was by the order of the words in the sentence. And so really what Paul says here, he puts the word servant first for emphasis. In other words, in English it sounds better to say the Lord's servant. But in, in Greek what he says for emphasis, the servant of the Lord must not do this, must not be quarrelsome. John Calvin, who certainly had to contend for the faith in his day and was no stranger to controversy, even if he didn't seek it out, had the following to say regarding our passage. He says, Paul's train of thought is as follows. The servant of God must stand aloof from contentions, but foolish questions are contentious. Therefore, everyone who wishes to be reckoned a servant of God must shun them. And here it is. And if superfluous questions are to be avoided on this one ground, that it is unseemly for God's servant to fight, how shameless it is, how shameless it is for people to have the effrontery to seek applause by starting endless controversies. This was long before the advent of the Internet. You know, we, we sometimes think that everything's new to us, that history started last week. Same temptations were around in Paul's day in the 16th century. We just have technology to make it easier to broadcast and easier to spread these things out. It's shameless for those to have the effrontery, as he says, to seek applause by starting endless controversies. And you can see the appeal of this, the appeal of the, to the ego in these things. Somebody, sometimes people want to show themselves as if they're the ones who are really willing to fight. There is a time to fight, but you don't do it for applause. You don't do it for those kinds of things and for ego. Pastors and preachers, I'll say this, we should not have fans. We shouldn't speak that way. At the very least, they should certainly not be seeking them. We shouldn't be seeking applause we should be seeking edification, winning the souls uh, to Christ through his gospel. If we remember that, that pastors and elders are servants and not celebrities, and remember that whose servants we are, that of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who came in humility in the form of a servant, of a servant as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that should shape the way that we approach the gospel ministry. It should shape the way that we approach correcting error in the church and avoiding controversy. Now, the second thing I think Paul deals with in our text is, is correcting opponents, correcting those who are in error. Now, we're, we are not to seek out controversy. We are to avoid it. And those who engage in, sh in such things as controversy for its own sake, uh, we are to, to engage those who bring false teaching into the church. That has to be corrected. Controversy can be avoided, but false teaching has to be nipped in the bud. It has to be Corrected. There's no. There's really no way of avoiding that. Avoiding senseless controversy and speculation is to be commended, but failing to guard the flock 
against the wolves is nothing but cowardice and dereliction of duty. There's a fake kind of boldness and bravery that deals with controversy. That's to be avoided. But when the wolves are at the door, any pastor or elder worth his salt is to, is to be the one uh, who guards the, the flock against such things, as Paul says in Acts chapter 20. But again, as with most things in life, there's a right way to do it, and there's a wrong way to do it. Look at verses 24 to 26. Once again, Paul says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be what? Kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with what? Gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. There's a lot to unpack there. We'll do our best to deal with, with the, the, big, the big things there. You know, in our day, many would discourage correction altogether. I've been to churches that that was the case. You have probably been to churches where that was the case. In fact, in our day, and I, you know, I, I always say in our day as if it's new. It's probably the same in every day. But uh, many in our day, and really probably always, many seek peace at the expense of truth. It's the Rodney King mentality, right? Why can't we all just, what, get along? The esteemed theologian Rodney King, why can't we all just get along? You know, we seek many times peace at the expense of truth, but is that really peace? If you sacrifice truth on the altar of peace, it's really not a true peace at all. True biblical and pastoral correction, while it must at times be firm, must not be belligerent. It must not be caustic. It must not be unnecessarily harsh. You know, it's often said in many churches, and I think this is it's true in practice, even if not explicitly true in, in what we say. We act as if the so-called 11th commandment, which is what? You know, you know there's 11 commandments? You know what the 11th one is? If you've seen Roadhouse, you know what it is. It's be nice. The, the most important commandment, the, unspo the unspoken, unwritten one, is to be, is to be nice. Uh, well, that's not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying, oh, you know, don't be, so, don't be so hasty to correct these things. Just be nice and we'll all get along. It'll all blow over in, in the end. There's nothing inherently unkind or unloving about correcting error or rebuking sin. You can do it in an unkind way, but it's not inherently unkind. In fact, I would say just the opposite. It's unkind and unloving to not correct false teaching and to not rebuke sin that needs to be rebuked. In fact, the scripture reading in the book of Proverbs that Rob read this morning mentioned that exact thing. Those who rebuke the wicked, God blesses. Not in, a, not in an egotistical way that they rebuke. In fact, those who judge wrongly, those are the ones who aren't blessed. Even as we saw last week in the sermon text. There's nothing unkind or unloving about correcting error or rebuking sin. The Lord's servant must correct those who hold to or teach error. But in doing so, he has to be kind or gentle. He must be able to teach. Remember in, in the, the previous letter, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gave a list of, a uh, very brief list of qualifications for office, for elder and for deacon. And one of the qualifications for elder is the exact same thing he mentions here. Able to do what? Teach. It's hard to correct somebody's doctrine if you can't even teach true, true doctrine. 
He must be patient in the face of opposition. And what does it say? He must correct his opponents with gentleness. You know, I found it interesting when I was reading that, that passage and looking at it. You know, very often we say that you know, it's not personal. It's just this. Paul actually says the pastor, he says his opponents, the people who are opposing him. Now, really, they're opposing the right teaching, right? But there's a, a blurring of a line there. Sometimes it becomes very personal. And when it becomes personal, the temptation is to get personal right back. And Paul says, no, you can't do that. You correct your opponents with gentleness or with kindness. Now, why is that? Why not just go guns a-blazing? Why not just go nuclear on those who oppose the truth? Some, some do that. Some swat the fly with a sledgehammer, right, as if that's appropriate in some way. What, why, why correct your opponents with gentleness? What is, Paul gives you the reason, doesn't he? Why, why we don't do that is because the goal, in addition to maintaining the truth of, the God, of God's word and guarding the flock from error, is also to seek the repentance and the restoration of the one who is in error. We're not to just write them off as if we somehow arrived at the perfect knowledge of the truth in, in a day and they should have done the same. Our goal must not just be to win the argument, but win the person back to repentance. Our goal must not be to prove ourselves right. In fact, that can't be the goal, but to demonstrate the truth of God plainly. In other words, it's not our word or our truth that's really being opposed at the end of the day. It's God's word and God's truth. It's God's honor and glory, not ours, that is at stake. It doesn't matter if they know that I'm right or you're right. It matters that they know what the word of God teaches in truth, and that is to be the difference. Not only that, but we must not presume that such a person is unrecoverable or beyond the reach of the grace of God. You know, to be sure, at times, Paul even went so far in dealing with sin and error in the church as to deliver a person to Satan. In other words, casting them out of the church itself for the destruction of the flesh. First Corinthians 5, verse 5. But even that was with the hopes of restoring them. You know, that, so the, the similar, similar thing is true of church discipline as it is for correcting error, which can also involve church discipline, can it? The purpose of discipline is not the casting out of the person. That sometimes has to happen. The purpose of doing that is to win them back, to open their eyes, to wake them up to their situation that they might repent sincerely and turn back to God and his word. But we don't, we don't presume that someone is beyond repentance or recovery by the grace of God. You know, you, you just never know what God might do. You never know, but God might grant repentance. And so we don't write such folks off. We also, we also conversely, don't put stock in our own abilities. We don't say, well, I'm, I'm such a gifted speaker or arguer or whatever that I'm going to argue them right back out of the snare of the devil and bring them back to repentance all on my own. I'm going to help God out. God, you know, God probably would have had a hard time with this one if it wasn't for me, but I'm pretty talented. That's not, that's not what Paul thought, right? And so we shouldn't think the same way either. We are not able to work repentance in our hearers or our opponents. Well, last but not least, and not unrelated to that, Paul teaches us here 
that the ministry of the gospel as well as our correction of those who oppose the truth, that in those things we are entirely dependent upon the sovereign grace and mercy and power of God. Just as preaching the gospel, you are, as a, as a pastor, as a preacher, as, a, as someone witnessing the gospel to a friend, we are entirely dependent upon the grace of God at work through his word for anything good to come of it. Only God can grant the repentance that is needed. Only God can change the heart and change the mind and change lives. Only God can save sinners. You know, the Bible all through the scriptures says something that we should remember. Salvation is of the Lord. And we can't help God out in that regard. All we can do is share the gospel and preach the word. We can save no one. We don't save anybody. God, Jesus Christ, saves. But there are no lost causes whom God cannot save. But we who are believers, we who are elders in the church, we don't get to play Holy Spirit in other people's lives. The Holy Spirit, what does Jesus say? The wind blows where it will. You can't tell where it came from, where it's going. So it is with those you know, who are worked upon by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit does what he wants through his word as he sees fit. Sometimes you might think, you know, as a preacher, as a pastor, um, sometimes you'll, you'll share the gospel with somebody or you'll preach a sermon and you think, boy, that one was great. And nothing comes of it. And then one time you think, that's the worst sermon I've ever preached. And God does something through it. Or that's the most clumsy attempt at evangelism I've ever tried to do. But that's the one that God uses. Maybe he does that to humble us, but God does uh, what he wants to do and we can't play Holy Spirit in people's lives. Our job is to faithfully and truthfully minister the truth of Scripture, even the gospel of Christ, and trust that God the Holy Spirit is going to work through his word in such a way as he pleases to do. So he gets all the glory. I, I have never argued anyone into the kingdom of God, and neither have you. I've argued. I've never argued somebody into the kingdom. I've never converted anybody, and neither have you. No pastor or preacher, however gifted they may be, uh, can affect the new birth in somebody who is dead in sin. Only God can do that by his sovereign mercy and grace in Christ through the preaching of his word. Whether it be somebody that is yet unconverted, somebody who is hard-hearted in their unbelief, or even somebody who's just indifferent to the things of God if you care less. Now, only God can grant that person repentance. Only God who's rich in mercy, Ephesians 2 verse 4, uh, can take a person who is dead in their trespasses and sins and make them alive together with Christ and grant them the gift of faith and salvation in Christ. If somebody caught in error is to come back to the knowledge of the truth and come to their senses, as Paul says in verse 26, God himself, at the end of the day, has to be the one that grants them such repentance. Now, why is that? There's a number of reasons for that. One of, them, one of those reasons is, is that such people are dead in their sins. But what does Paul say? They've been captured or taken captive, verse 26, by the snare of the devil to do his will. You know, Paul says in Ephesians, we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but by, against principalities and powers. We often lose sight of that because the only thing that we see is the person. And we think that they're the enemy and, they're, and all this thing. No, it's, it's, it's something beyond that is what's going on. We have to remember the ultimate source of all false teaching and heresy. What is the ultimate source of all false teaching and heresy that creeps into the church? 
It is of a supernatural origin. It is satanic in nature. It is satanic, literally, Paul says, in nature. Those who teach it are doing the bidding of the evil one who has captured them to do his will. You could say in some ways they're even a victim of it because they've been taken captive by the evil one to do his will. They are in some sense captives to satanic influence. Now, is any preacher able to overcome such things as that on our own? No. Is any pastor gifted enough to argue them out of such a captivity as that? No. But God can. And so what are we to do, Paul says? We are to correct them. We're not to not correct them, but we are to correct them gently, trusting God to do the work through his word as he pleases. When we manipulate, when we try to argue them out of it, in, in, a, in a vehement way, what are we really saying? We, we're saying we think we can do that. But when you present the truth plainly, we're saying, we're, we're showing by that that we know that only God can do such a thing. And so we correct them gently, trusting God to work through his word however he pleases. But we must remember that when we're dealing with those, let's say that you're dealing with somebody who's in a cult, who's in the Mormon religion or Jehovah's Witnesses or some such thing, those who are captive the ones that are knocking at your door, ringing your doorbell, they are captive to false teachings of various kinds. Uh, and they are captive by the evil one in some ways. But what are you and I to think of that? We should be saying to ourselves, there but for the grace of God go I. I think Rob mentioned this passage when he was up front earlier. What do you have that you haven't been given? What makes you differ from someone else? The grace of God and the grace of God alone. There is no room for pride, for only boasting in the Lord and his mercy. And so we must rebuke and correct error and false teaching and sin. But we have to do, do such a thing in, in the knowledge that we ourselves are utterly dependent upon God on granting mercy and repentance, that they might escape the snare of the devil and be restored to their right mind. They might come back to a knowledge of the truth. Our job is to plainly state the truth. Only God can bring them back to a right knowledge of that, of that truth. May God in his mercy make us as individual believers and as a church, make us valiant for the truth, but be kind, humble, and gentle in our defense of God's truth, demonstrating by doing that that we are truly God's servants, imitating the example of Christ our Savior. To him be all the glory. Amen.